0: Welcome to another week, this week in government enforcement, Jerome Thomas, as always, joined by Tom Firestone. Um, We got uh, some cool stuff to talk about this week. Um, Tom is going to start us out talking about the OLC, the new OLC opinion on the Trump tax returns, as well as new DOJ policies on subpoenaing reporters and communications between the DOJ and the White House. Again, uh, great stuff and sort of cutting edge stuff, so can't wait to hear about that. And then I'm going to finish up... uh, The session talking about SEC Chair Gensler's public statement late last week around increased and uh, 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 additional disclosure requirements that he's asking the SEC staff to require of China-based issuers, particularly those that go public in the U.S., through um, VIEs. And we'll talk a little bit about what those are and and how they're exactly set up and how they differ from a normal public company, at least sort of how the retail investor might think they differ from a normal public company. Um, But I guess uh, with that said, Tom, why don't I kick it off to you and then we can go from there.
1: Thanks a lot, Jerome. So yeah, we talked about when Merrick Garland was appointed, we talked about how he was likely going to revise a lot of the Trump era policies to restore independence to the Justice Department. I think we've seen that in a series of recent memoranda that have come out of the Justice Department. The first one that I want to talk about is the opinion by the Office of Legal Counsel, which was issued last week um, to the Treasury Department, advising the Treasury Department of how to respond to a subpoena from the uh, the um, ways in the Congressional Ways and Means Committee, in, res- in re- re- which requested um, President Trump's tax returns. Now you may remember this is a story that goes back a while. Twenty nineteen, the Ways and Means Committee um, requested that the Treasury Department produce uh, then President Trump's tax returns, including. Returns before um, uh, he had been elected. The Treasury Department, not knowing what to do with this, went to the Department of Justice, the Office of Legal Counsel, which said, "Don't worry, you don't have to produce these tax returns." They looked at it and they said, "This is obviously politically motivated. They just want to get these tax returns so that they can expose them to the public. That's not a proper legislative purpose. They're only allowed to get tax returns when it's an aid of an of, of a um, of a legitimate congressional legislative purpose here." look at what they're saying, look at what the uh, requesters have said about the president having to release his tax returns. This is clearly a political shame. You don't have to produce these documents. Um, And they did not. Now, the Ways and Means Committee has come back with a new request for um, President Trump's tax returns. Once again, the Treasury Department went to the Office of Legal Counsel of the Justice Department and surprise, surprise, under the new administration, they came back with a very different answer, saying, yes, you should produce these documents. And what they said is, um, the opinion was authored by Don Johnson, a very distinguished um, uh, law professor from the Indiana, Indiana University, who's now the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. And what she basically said is, look, congressional committees are entitled to deference and a presumption of legitimacy when they make these requests. You should, we should deny these requests only in exceptional circumstances. And she also pointed out, look, 2019, we're now in 2021, we're not talking about a sitting president's tax returns, we're talking about a former president's tax returns. That changes the balance of considerations and the concerns about, reduces the risk of political abuse of the system. So basically, uh, OLC reversed previous Trump Department policy, told Treasury to produce these documents. Now, uh, not surprisingly, the president's lawyer, Ron Fischetti, who is one of the great deans of the New York Criminal Defense Bar, one of the most respected criminal defense lawyers in New York, said, we're going to fight this thing. He said, the opinion is absolutely ridiculous. And he said, we're going to fight this in court tooth and nail. Now, I have to say, I think it's going to be an uphill opinion, uh, uphill battle for them to try to get this opinion reversed in court. Um, we're dealing with a different situation in 2019 and in, from 2019 in a number of ways. Among other things, since then, the Supreme Court has decided the Mazers case, which also involved congressional um, requests for pre- the president's tax returns, which the then president um, fought. The Supreme Court basically took a position in that the, um Congress had to do more than demonstrate a mere valid legislative purpose, but they didn't have to demonstrate the kind of specific need that the president was saying that they needed to do. They basically said you've got to show that the information is not available elsewhere, that the request is narrowly tailored, that you've got a valid legislative purpose, and this doesn't impose excessive burdens on a sitting president. So they picked a nice middle ground balancing test, but they also said at the beginning of that uh, opinion, that traditionally these kinds of disputes have been worked out between the legislative branch and the executive branch. Courts haven't needed to get involved. So, you know, you guys should really sort this out yourselves. In this situation, what we've got is basically Congress requesting documents and the executive branch saying, yes, we want to produce these documents. So under the Supreme Court's reasoning and Mazers, which isn't a brand is not exactly on point. It, you know, the branches have done exactly what the Supreme Court told them to do. There's no reason for the courts to, uh, to upset that. Obviously the president's going to fight that. So I think there, you know, we'll see litigation over this. I think that ultimately um, the court will uphold the DOJ, OLC opinion. The case is set for, we're taping on a Tuesday as I understand it. there's going to be a preliminary status conference uh, before Judge Trevor McFadden here in uh, the District of Columbia. Um, Tomorrow, Wednesday, August um, 4th, Uh, Trevor McFadden is a former partner of ours, was a member of our our practice group, and I think everybody who knows him would agree that he's a very intelligent, very thoughtful um, lawyer, and so we'll have to see what he does. I think he's going to put it down for a briefing schedule and we'll see where it comes out, but significant change from the Trump Justice Department position two other positions on which they have um, departed from Trump administration policy. The first relates to their media policy and specifically the policy of subpoenaing reporters for their sources of information. This has been a thorn in the side of Every president since the dawn of time, we can't stand these leaks. We've got to figure out who's leaking to the press. And numerous presidents, not just Trump, have tried to get reporters to identify their sources, all in the name of protecting national security and protecting leaks, which could undermine American national security. The traditional policy applied by the Justice Department in these circumstances was to balance the interests of national security against the interests of freedom of the press. Um, The Trump administration obviously aggressively pursued um, journalists and used compulsory process to try to get journalists to identify their sources. The Garland Justice Department has now officially changed that longstanding Justice Department policy. The memo dated July 19th in which the Attorney General said the Department of Justice will no longer use compulsory legal process for the purpose of obtaining information from or records of members of the news media. And they specifically addressed the previous policy, which as I say, predates the Trump administration, the balancing test, and they said a balancing test may fail to properly weigh the important national security interest in protecting journalists from compelled disclosure of information, revealing their sources, sources they need to apprise the American people of the workings of their government. So they basically said, there's not really a balancing test here, protecting journalists is protecting national security. And so we're not going to do this anymore. And what they did say is, look, this doesn't mean that leakers from the government are immune from compulsory process. they also said there's an exception when you need to get information from a journalist to prevent imminent risk of death, serious bodily harm, terrorist attack. Um, It also uh, doesn't apply if the journalist is under investigation for something like insider trading. It's not a carte blanche for journalists to do whatever they want. But it does apply when a member of the press has only possessed or published government information in the course of news gathering. Basically, we're not going to subpoena them for their sources anymore. Significant change, not just from the Trump administration, but from previous pre-Trump Department of Justice policy. The third uh, memorandum I want to talk about came out on July 21st and relates to communications with the White House. This is not a departure from previous DOJ policy. It is merely restating what had always been the policy, um, even through the Trump administration, though, not always honored um, uh, by the Trump administration, even to some extent by various other previous administrations. Basically, the policy says the Justice Department will not advise the White House concerning pending or contemplated criminal or civil law enforcement investigations or cases unless doing so is important for the performance of the president's duties and appropriate from a law enforcement perspective. They said that they, they will only involve the, such communication should only involve the attorney general and the counsel or a deputy counsel to the president, but not the president, unless there is a very compelling need to do so. This was largely the policy that was articulated by attorney general Holder in 2009, but as we know, um, uh, not always honored Um, uh, Since uh, by the previous administration. They create an exemption for national security matters. Sometimes, obviously, there can be an overlap between national security and criminal investigations, and a criminal investigation can uncover evidence which is important to national security determinations. So that is one uh, specific exemption. They also make the point that requests for legal opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel, such as the one we just talked about, have to come from the uh, counsel to the president or the deputy counsel, not from the president um, himself or herself, as may be the case in the future. So we're seeing significant um, changes, sometimes just reiterating a previous policy, other cases though actually changing longstanding precedent uh, with regard to um, subpoenas to journalists. So with that, Jerome, I'll turn it back to you. Thanks, Tom. And whenever anybody says district court judge Trevor McFadden,
0: I, I, I it, 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 it's Trevor to me, right? You know, it's like you know, <laughs> you we're know, up, up together, you know, for a number of years. Um, you know, uh, you know, real, real good, great legal mind. L- like him a lot. It's just, you know, when when your old friends assume new titles and responsibilities sometimes you revert back to essentially your childhood. It's like, no, he's just Trevor, you know?
1: <laughs> but if you see him in court, it is your oh, honor. You have, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> your like, honor. I,
0: I, I think I would actually stutter if I have to say Judge <laughs> McFadden because it's just Trevor anyway, but of course I'm joking. Um, so I, I want to talk about... Um, Uh, a uh, a public statement that SEC Chair Gensler made last week, last Friday in particular, the 30th of July, um, that uh, is just the latest uh, tit for the tit for tat between um, the U.S. securities regulators and the Chinese securities regulators relating to um, China-based companies issuing their securities on U.S. markets. The speech is called statement on investor protection related to recent developments in China. And again, you can find it on the SEC's website, July 30th. Um, so last week, uh, again, Chair Gensler made a public statement, which essentially is tantamount to a mandate to SEC staff, mostly Corp Finn, but the, you can see a little spillover in some of his statements relating to enforcement, um, r- relating to disclosures that he wants to see the commission require from offshore issuers that are associated with China-based operating companies. Um, And again, we'll get into a little bit about what this means, because it's really the structure of these companies and how they're listed in the U.S. and what the China-based restrictions are on non-China ownership of operating companies that causes a lot of the issues between the U.S. and China with respect to U.S. listings of China companies. Um, Again, this comes against the following backdrop, and it, it goes back a decade plus, um, but recently U.S. Congress passed the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act, we've talked about that on the show, which does a lot of things, but at its core calls for the SEC to delist Chinese ADRs from the U.S. market if the company has failed to comply with uh, allowing PCAOB uh, audits for three years in a row. Um, this is really kind of uh, what people are talking about, is kind of the ticking time bomb uh, in the Chinese listings in the U.S., looking at 2025 as a potential significant uh, moment for delistings, uh, litigation, enforcement, et cetera, given that really 2022 is when that clock is going to start. Um, but but there's also, there's some stuff going on in China as well. So recently, um, a China-based rideshare company, Didi, its stock plummeted close to 40% after, you know, shortly after its New York Stock Exchange listing based on the Chinese government taking um, um, action um, that for all intents and purposes prohibited new users from downloading um, the DD software and prohibited other vendors from using DD software and DD um, uh, code. Um, This was apparently triggered by news of a uh, formal investigation by the uh, Chinese cybersecurity administration, but came right on the heels of of a public offering of DD in the US. Um, China's also proposed new rules requiring cybersecurity review of any company with data of more than 1 million people and the approval by Chinese authorities of any Chinese company that wishes to go public via a VIE offering variable interest entity offering in the United States. And recently, the Chinese government has also prohibited Chinese tutoring companies, uh, education companies from going public. Via this VIE route, a variable interest entity, which you know sent uh, sent the, the market in the U.S. for those companies um, sliding quite a bit. So, real quick, um, let's talk about what this statement is and and what some of these terms are. So, um, so uh, Chair Gensler first set out uh, and tried to make clear what U.S. shareholders actually own when they think they're purchasing shares of a Chinese issue or on U exchanges on US exchanges. He said, um, you know, look, in many sectors in China, companies are not allowed to have foreign ownership and cannot directly list on exchanges outside of the US. And that, in fact, is true. Um, Essentially, there's a prohibition on non-Chinese ownership of of businesses in various uh, industries that are are deemed to be significant to the Chinese uh, national interest, which includes a wide variety of industries. Um, But there is a well known and not well kept secret that both everyone in the US and the Chinese regulators know about. And it's called the variable interest entity route. So what happens is Chinese operating companies looking to raise money through offerings, including IPOs or listings on US stock exchanges, um, can set up a VIE structure. And so what's the VIE structure? Well, it's super complicated. If you look at some of the charts in listings and IPO documents, um, it, it, it takes a PhD to figure them out. However, I found one real user-friendly description in a July 14th uh, Nikkei Asia report. Um, VIE listings, quote, involve a US-listed shell company re- registered in, and could be in the Caymans or other jurisdictions, signing contracts through a China-based subsidiary with the Chinese enterprise that actually runs the operations. These, in effect, grant the Cayman's company control over the business and a claim on its profits, even without direct ownership. This allows overseas investors to become de facto shareholders in the Chinese company. Gensler went on to explain that um, it's this offshore shell company, oftentimes referred to as the Cayman Islands Company, that, that U.S. investors actually own the interest in. And then the the shell company enters into service and other agreements with a China-based operating company, um, which which ultimately issues its shares through the the, the Cayman company in in the U.S. However, the shell company actually, he said, has no equity ownership in the China-based operating company. And for accounting purposes, the shell company is simply able to consolidate the operating company into its financial statements. So Chair Gensler went on to say, look, this is how American investors are getting exposure to the China-based foreign, to the China companies, including China-based operating companies. But it's only through a series of service and other contracts. Um, And he said he worries that investors may not realize that they hold sh- stock in a shell company rather than a China-based operating company. And kind of a, as, a, as, a, as a sidebar here, for anyone who has worked over the years in the China reverse merger cases, and going back probably now more than a decade and 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 forward, you're quite familiar with this operating structure, right? There's a there's an entity that is listed in the US, but the operating company is quite different. And there is no ownership link. There's a there's a there's a, a contractual relationship between the two, but the operating company kind of stands on its own um, and has its own ownership interests in China, which oftentimes are governed by foreign investment restrictions under Chinese law. So as a result of this, um, you know, Chair Gensler directed the court Finstaff to, to, to require certain disclosures from offshore companies uh, uh, and issuers associated with China-based operating companies in registration statements before they become effective with the US. Uh, first, he, he wants uh, disclosures that investors are not buying shares of the China-based operating company, but instead of buying shares of a shell company um, that maintains service agreements and other agreements associated with the operating company, and he, he wants a, a business description distinction between the operating company and the issuer, um, uh, and that, uh, that 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 the China-based operating company, the shell company, and investors, he said, want he wants disclosures around the uncertainty around future actions by the government of China that could significantly affect the operating company's financial performance and enforceability of the contractual arrangements. Essentially, what he's saying here is investors need to know that at some point, the Chinese government can say either directly or through imposed conditions that this VIE structure is not appropriate, is not legitimate under Chinese foreign ownership uh, restrictions and laws, and that as a result, all ownership relationship through these services agreements are essentially null and void. Um, He he, he is asking for there to be some description of that uncertainty in in the China-based issuers disclosures. Um, And that he wants uh, detailed financial information, including metrics. I'm not sure what metrics he's actually talking about, but quantitative metrics so that investors can understand the financial relationship between the variable interest entity, i.e. the shell company, and, and or, or the underlying operating company, I should say, is the VIE and the issuer, the shell company. He also wants um, China-based operating companies that register securities in the US um, to have disclosures relating to um, whether they were ever denied permission from Chinese authorities to list on the US exchanges and the risks that such an approval could be denied or rescinded and the duty to disclose if approval was rescinded. And uh, he he also wants disclosures that the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act um, uh, requires that the PCOB be permitted to inspect the issuer's um, public accounting firm within three years, which may result, if that doesn't happen, in a delisting of the operating company in the future if the PCOB is unable to inspect the firm. So look, he's very much focused here on disclosures and and I'll talk a little bit about sort of my thoughts on that. um, but but he didn't stop there. Um, he also had two other mandates or reminders to the SEC staff that touch more upon enforcement. He said, first, in addition to the specific guidance that he, he just gave and that he expects, uh, he expects Corp Fin to follow up on, he said that the SEC will continue to hold all companies to the securities law's high standards for complete and accurate disclosure. Second, he asked staff, the, 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 the uh, SEC staff, to engage in targeted additional reviews of filings for companies with significant China-based operations, Right. Um, and so while he doesn't specifically mention enforcement anywhere in there, um, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to know what he's saying. Right. He he is foreshadowing that there, there is a disclosure regime or enhanced disclosures that he's looking to have around these China-based issuers, but that he's also expecting Corp Finn and, and, tacitly enforcement to look closely at, at the conduct and disclosures of China-based issuers listing in the United States. Um, you know, so obviously, um, you know, this isn't going to result in enforcement cases right now, but it could very well start resulting in investigations and enforcement actions down the road. Um, what's interesting, Tom, is that a few years ago, actually a while ago, I actually owned a small amount of shares in one of these types of companies, a VIE company. Um, really just to get some personal and professional exposure. It actually happened to be an education company. Um, that 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 ended up uh essentially, and it's my it's my investment, ended up being completely worthless based on delistings and lawsuits and um actions taken by the US and the Chinese government. Um, but but I get what he's saying, but I also get um I, I also get there's a rub here and there's a challenge, right? So what what Chair Gensler is saying is 100%, right, he wants disclosures made to investors about essentially the risks that these companies post, and, and, and the fact that investors may think they're actually buying the operating company, that they own shares of the underlying operating company when they really own something much different. Um, uh, what I'm saying, is that uh, you know? I, I I I'm an SEC lawyer. Been doing this for 20 years. I've actually you know been through the investing rigmarole on this, and it's ridiculously and notor- notoriously complicated for anybody, you know a, a, a you know e- even a 20 year securities lawyer, let alone a sort of a retail investor who doesn't have you know training in the securities laws. It's very difficult to separate kind of the wheat from the chaff and understand well what exactly am I buying. Um, And frankly, it's also even more difficult for, and Tom, you'll appreciate this, for a a retail investor to understand this chess game right now, right, that's being played between the Chinese and the Americans. And that's really what's going on here, right? If you dig down deep into what what Gensler's saying, he's like, look, these issuers have no idea what the Chinese government is going to do in the future. They have no idea, even though there was a Supreme Court ruling in China a few years ago that, I understand it's been reported upheld the legitimacy of this VIE structure. Um, what Gensler is saying is that we have no we have no guarantee that's ever going to remain the same. And um, you know the, the Chinese authorities, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, are beginning to take actions that are clamping down and really um, hurting the market value of companies that are listing in the US through this VIE structure. And um, we, you, these companies need to disclose these risks. Frankly, um, I, you know, I, I think you need a JD combined with a PhD in international relations in, and foreign policy to understand exactly what's going on here. You know, and so um, you know, for, for Chair Gensler to expect that this is going to be cured by disclosures, I get, it's really the only sword that the SEC has. Um, I, I I don't know that it's going to go the full distance um, and, and have the full effect of what I think, you know, Chair Gensler is looking for. I think he's saying we have to start somewhere, but, you know, this is a really complicated area that has a lot of different areas of, uh, of uh, uh, you know, foreign policy, business, legal, regulatory, right? And then baked in all of this is sort of what I call that, that ticking time bomb, which is in three years from now, it's go, the, you know, somebody's going to come knocking saying, hey, what is the status? And I suspect it will be the SEC. What is the status of China-based issuers and, and that operating company and their, their local accounting firm allowing PCAOB audits of that accounting firm and access to the operating company? And if progress has not been made there, um, I think the SEC is going to be hard pressed to not move aggressively on the listing, but that's going to destroy the value of these companies, much of which are held by US investors here in the United States. So there is a there, there, there's a there's a policy, there's a market integrity. Um, uh, and there's obviously sort of international relations and foreign policy that's driving this. It's um, it, it's really interesting. I I. I you know, uh, you know, there are reports that the Chinese government knows about these, and I they, they have to know about VIEs, I suspect they absolutely do. Um, and they think that it's just companies thumbing their nose at the Chinese authorities saying, Yeah, we know you have these rules on, uh, on foreign investment. You know what? We'll get around it by some smart, you know, corporate engineering and setting it up in a way that avoids the laws that are on the books in China, limiting foreign ownership. And there's a view that the Chinese authorities do not like this. And, um, you know, maybe looking to take action um, with respect to companies that continue to go to market in the US through this, through this avenue. On the flip side though, Tom, you know, if China truly wishes to sort of emerge and become a part of the global economy, um, uh, it cannot arbitrarily, take action that, 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 that crushes the market value and the investment value of global investors. And it's not just American investors, they are global investors who have purchased shares in their view of this company. Um, yeah, that, that, that will have, or could have significant repercussions as to questions about how well of a global citizen China is playing in in the overall marketplace and and, in the group of citizens, global citizens, if if they are just taking steps to, um, you know, destroy investor value in transactions that they knew about. And uh, on the flip side, you know, what's the SEC gonna do? Is the SEC gonna do in three years, are they gonna aggressively pursue uh, deregistration? Are they going to pursue enforcement action against companies? Um, you know, I think enforcement action is, is probably far more likely than immediately in three years, them bringing deregistration, unless the company is truly just a dormant shell with no market value. But again, tough questions for both the SEC and the Chinese authorities to answer. Um, and obviously, I'm going to be paying a lot of attention to this moving forward, as I think this is just we're sort of in the middle of this. We're going to see a lot more about this.
1: Fascinating stuff, Jerome. Um, and again, sort of what we've been talking about the intersection of enforcement and international relations. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, all right. Hey, Tom, great stuff. Thank you, everyone out there. Keep watching, keep sending us your suggestions. Um, we take them seriously and we'll try to make sure they're covered in our future editions. So, with that, um, I'm going to send us out with gathering crowds. Thanks again, Tom.
1: Thank you.